0: The viewpoints expressed by the host are her own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CBS News Radio.
1: Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. Joining us now is Amari Paris Jeffries, a leader in a nonprofit management, community activism, education reform and social justice sectors. He currently serves as the executive director of Embrace Boston. Embrace Boston seeks to connect, educate, and energize within the Boston communities and across traditional borders to cultivate the conditions necessary for racial and economic justice in. Boston. Amari. thanks so much for being here.
0: Nina, so so glad to be here and celebrate the holiday with you. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to celebrate it with you as well. And you all are doing big things. I mean, this is a big, the weekend, the whole weekend up until this very day, MLK Day, and the dedication of the new memorial statue, the Embrace. One of the many things that I admire about the Embrace Memorial is that it communicates that uh, Coretta Scott King, the one and only, was in many ways an equal partner with Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in the fight for civil rights and other causes, and so often she is left out of the narrative. Uh, tell us about the vision for, you know, the creation of the memorial and why you and others felt that it was so important to to bring them in as a as a team, as a couple, like they they they, they have a partnership here, and you you all embrace them in this way, in the embrace.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, we, when we thought about the originally commissioning a memorial, you know, like many other places we were, we were thinking uh, a Dr. King Memorial. And I, I think our, our, our ideas started to change the submission by Hank Willis Thomas and you, and folks might know Hank Willis Thomas uh, and Mass Design Group for for their work at the EJI Memorial in, in Alabama and in Montgomery for their, their, their work across the country with memorials and monuments, the gun rights memorial, uh, the, the upcoming Emmett Till Memorial. Um, they submitted a proposal that had both Dr. and Mrs. King, and it was inspired by this photograph of Dr. and Mrs. King embracing the moment, the minute that he had found out that he had won the Nobel Prize. And Hank talks about what inspired him on that photo to create the embrace, which which, as people might might know is is two arms embracing, what inspired him to create it was the photo. And the fact that Mrs. King, you know, when you hug someone, someone's usually the taller or shorter person and someone's at the bottom of the hug and someone's at the top of the hug. Well, in the photo, Mrs. King is at the bottom of the hug. She's, she's holding Dr. King's weight on her shoulders as he's embracing them and they're Filled with love and joy with this with, with this great news. And I think Hank talks about being inspired by the image of Mrs. King holding Dr. King up. It, it is as if he was placing the weight of his responsibility. It was as if the weight of the civil rights movement was on Dr. King's shoulders. And it would also illuminated the role of black women in movements uh, across the world and in our country. And so uh, Dr. King was assassinated in '68, and you know I'm, I'm almost 50, and so my 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 vision of Dr. King, the 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 uh, legacy of King, um, came from Mrs. King because she was around in my lifetime. I I got to hear her speak. Um, I got to see her talk about um, the importance of the work and continue uh, the fight. I got to see her advocate for the King holiday. It wasn't until 2000 where all 50 states celebrated the King holiday. And so Dr. King's legacy and the legacy of most of and many of the civil rights moments that we think about, uh, Mrs. King was a steward of that. Uh, The embrace is two stories high. The plaza is four stories wide. Uh, It is the largest American-made bronze statue in the country. And so it is is of significance. And I think for folks who live in Boston uh, and given, you know, Boston's History in some some lights, you know, Boston is not looked on uh, fondly by people of color, and so we we understand that history. Um, and at the same time, it is also one of the places that people from across the country and the world come to get their story of America reinforced. Right, it is the place of the Boston Tea Party. It is the place of Paul Revere's ride. It is the place of patriots like John Quincy Adams and Sam Adams and others. Right, it's such a historic city for our nation, and to have the Embrace be in the proximity of the Freedom Trail and these other historical icons and markers is important because when people come to Boston to hear their American story, I hope they have a more robust story about America. When you go to the Embrace, there's an app you'll download it uh, and hear the stories of the other folks that we're honoring on the plaza. So we're honoring 65 distinguished Bostonians From 1950 to 1965, because we know that no one does this alone. Uh, And so Dr. King didn't do it alone. He had Mrs. King, and they didn't do it alone. They had a community of activists across the country folks like Bob Moses, Mel King, Melnia Cass, Elma Lewis, Hubie Jones, uh, Jeep Jones, so many other leaders that were there doing the work before the Kings came back for the 65 rally uh, and continued the work after. Uh, after he his death, his assassination, and into the future. And so um, I think people will get that experience through the app. We call it an Eyes Up digital experience. Uh, we want people to see it if they're able to, and we have accessibility methods so that folks who are visually impaired can still experience it. Uh, we want people to smell it as the pantina ages and the seasons change. We want them to understand the moment and the space. Uh, we want them to touch it. it it's very similar to the bean uh, in Chicago it's there to be touched it's 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 wide enough for you to stand in the center of the hug uh, and then when we want we want people to hear the stories about Boston and these other leaders and the kings and so this 4d experience is what I hope that people get out of that and they can they'll eventually be able to download the app before they come to visit the embrace to start their experience and then have a, a different experience once they're um, on the site,
1: the embrace is certainly multifaceted, and I can I can visualize everything that you just said, and, and this is magnificent, especially in ways that you're you all have incorporated the needs of otherly able people. Because so often in society, unfortunately, we do not do that. So I'm beaming; I can't wait to get there to feel and see the embrace. And in the decades to come, what is your hope and vision for what visitors? will continue to learn and to feel when they're there and hopefully spread the word so that others will come to feel and see the embrace.
0: Yeah, you, you know, you know, monuments are the original cookies, right? And so, you know, cookies, when you on a website, they ask you to download them if you're going to buy some shoes. Yes. And they kind of reinforce the fact that you really want to buy those shoes because they show up in ads and other places on websites that you download. And so monuments are the same way. And so the Daughters of the American Confederacy erected over 430 monuments, most of them built in 1910, to really tell a story long after the war, to tell a new story around the Confederacy and their values. And I think some of those values we, we've experienced and, and have blown up in the, uh, in the 2020s. Uh, we've, we've seen the impacts of those cookies from those monuments, particularly in 2020, the summer of 2020. And so I hope there's a lasting impression when people come to Boston and visit the Embrace and that those cookies last with them. Not only do we want them to have uh, an experience of joy and reflection and learning when they go to the site, but I hope the the image of Boston as the uh, as America's heart of movements is also reflected in what they do when they leave when they leave the site. You know, this is a place you know, we, you and I talked about it in the beginning that, you know, both of us, before we knew it, we thought the kings were from Atlanta or were met in Atlanta, but they met in Boston. This is also the place of uh, where W.E.B. Du Bois is from, where Frederick Douglass is from, where Malcolm X's family was from. And in the movie Malcolm X, uh, that's where him and Shorty were walking around They're in Boston. Uh, and Monroe Trotter, one of the, the founders of the Niagara Movement, which is the precursor of the um, um, uh, NAACP. And so this has been a, a place where these iconic leaders have cut their teeth and made their way, uh, President and Mrs. Obama. Right. And so I think we, we want to we want people to think about Boston in a different light and to hold it as a as a as a, a, a city on the hill for what America could be.
1: Indeed. Oh, my God. This I mean is really exciting. And, and what an exciting and very fitting day for of the great city of Boston, I would say our nation and the world, because you all will attract people from all over the world. Amari Paris Jeffries, the Executive Director of Embrace Boston. Thank you. Thank you. We'll have more of the Martin Luther King Junior Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio right after this. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner, a contemporary of Martin Luther King's who also gained recognition for his work in fighting for civil and workers' rights was Cesar Chavez. And although the legends never met in person, we know they respected and admired the work of each other. And just as Dr. King became synonymous with the Black freedom movement of the 50s and 60s, Cesar Chavez became identified with the fight for rights for farm workers. Joining us now to discuss the influence of Dr. King on Cesar Chavez's work is Dr. Jose B. Gonzalez. Dr. Gonzalez is a Fulbright scholar, professor at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, and editor-in-chief of Latino stories.com. Dr. Gonzalez, thank you for being here.
2: Thank you, Nina, for having me here and for taking the time to examine uh, this fascinating topic. Um, Thank you.
1: Let's start first with the early life of Cesar Chavez. He was born in Arizona, and like many families in the Depression, his parents lost their home to foreclosure. What happened next in Cesar's young life, and how did that shape his vocation as an adult?
2: You know it's interesting because both individuals, these two social justice giants who um, left with a a world with a tremendous legacy in both cases uh they were very much influenced by a number of factors, including of course their families and by seeing these injustices that not only their family members experienced but by seeing the horrors that others around them faced on a day to day basis. I believe that they, in turn, shaped their philosophies and and, um, all that shaped their activism. Um, They also saw how their families reacted to these injustices. And in the case of Cesar Chavez, uh, the experience of seeing his family lose their Arizona home when he was only 11, um, that became one of the first lessons in injustice for him the family struggled, as did others during the Depression. And like so many other Mexican-American families in the Southwest, um, they turned to migrant work. And in their case, they moved to California to make ends meet. Um, that did mean having a life of physical struggle, a life of horrible wages and unfair treatment. And you know, in many cases, migrant workers were paid according to the weight of fruits and vegetables and the Products, um, the the produce that they picked. There's a story of Cesar Chavez's mother being cheated one time by a farm or owner who would tip the scales in his favor um, with his foot, so that he would have to pay her and other migrant workers less. Um, his mother and his family, in turn, told other workers about this. Um, you know, it was acts like these that uh, really made an impression on Cesar Chavez and taught him how to stand up to others and for others. Um, the family had to move around quite a bit, and uh, and by the time, actually, he was in eighth grade, Chavez, uh, quit school, and uh, by that time, he worked with his family full-time. So the, uh, the experience of losing that home uh, really taught him a number of lessons that he would then um, use in his own activism.
1: It's interesting you mentioned Chavez started working full time in the field while he was still a child. Really, there's so much child labor in farm work, in migrant farm work. Why does that still exist today?
2: Exploitation, I think, is truly the answer to that question. The fact is that it it is a. Financial gain, right? And by that I mean that you um, have these individuals who are often powerless uh, to do much about that, and who are desperate enough that they'll they'll uh, accept whatever wages are, are available. And um, one way to uh, get um, the these workers and, and to to get people to um, accept these really low low wages is by exploiting uh, children, right? And so um, it was actually, you know, d- during the Depression, we saw that quite a bit, but um, some families and, and certainly, um, you know, a- Asian, uh, uh, Filipino, um, Mexican-American, uh, Latin American, of course, uh, black families, uh, they, they all saw that more than anyone. And so, um, you know, it's very difficult to fight against that when, you know, you have these owners that are wealthy, And nowadays, not only are they wealthy, but they're conglomerates that um, can actually bankrupt uh, unions and can, uh, in many cases, bankrupt individuals.
1: As a young man, Chavez joined the community service organization and eventually became the national director. Tell us about his work there and why he felt the need to leave the CSO.
2: I'm glad you asked about this work, because that experience also shaped his leadership style and provided him with training and forming strategies for gathering support years later as a labor leader. Um, Even though Chavez did not have a formal education he had a certain charisma. He wasn't the great orator that Dr. King was. I mean, really think about it, who was um, in our history of time, right? Um, but Chavez was most definitely someone whom others would listen closely to. Uh, he was recruited uh, by a man named Fred Ross, who was well-known as a community organizer and as an activist. Um, he saw, uh, Ross sought um, someone among the Mexican-American circles to join the cia S.O., uh, which was um, a real influential Latino civil rights group. And uh, when he met Cesar Chavez, he knew he found the right person. Chavez uh, didn't quite trust him at first, but by the end of the first meeting, uh, he was impressed with him, and with Ross, and agreed to join the CSO. Um, So for 10 years, he led these efforts to increase voting registration among Latino populations um, to improve education, right? Um, We have to remember that uh, during the 1940s, Um, and beyond, and and, uh, really the first half of the 20th century, the equivalent of Jim Crow laws, um, which quite often people refer to as Juan Crow laws, um, existed. And um, so uh, Latino populations were often left powerless, and uh, the law worked against them. Um, Chavez himself actually had been a victim of these laws, of these segregation laws. At one point, in his life, he found out soon after being in the navy that uh, he couldn't just attend any theater and uh, was arrested for sitting in the um the whites only part of the theater so um he I think in many ways Cesar Chavez understood how laws uh, victimize certain groups and um as si- satisfying as that work was, and it seemed to be a really good batch working for the cSO. He felt that um, there was more work to be done for farm workers, and as a result, um, his focus turned to forming a union and creating a union for farm workers. The CSO didn't support that cause, and so Chavez left um, and, uh, and in turn started his uh, labor work, which became uh, legendary eventually.
1: Chavez founded the National Farm Workers Association, which later became the United Farm Workers. Chavez found inspiration in the examples of Gandhi and King and adopted a policy of nonviolence in his own work. What did Chavez see? Let me do that again. What did Chavez see in King's example that guided his decision to use peaceful means to bring change?
2: You are right, Nina. Uh, Martin Luther King was indeed an inspiration of Chavez. In fact, when King was tragically assassinated, uh, Chavez said, uh, Martin Luther King definitely influenced me. And much more after his death, the spirit doesn't die. The ideas remain. So he had a great admiration and respect for Dr. King. Um, and I do believe that despite the pressures to the contrary um the philosophies of these two social justice giants of um using nonviolence as a tool uh, were similar in that the two were brothers in in somewhat parallel effort, efforts so um dr king for example once said an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind and although you know some of that is inspired by verse by uh the bible uh Partly, they both understood the impracticality of violence. Neither wanted blood in their hands. Um, Chavez understood the reality that farm workers would not win gunfights against armies of police. And I think that King and Chavez saw each other's successes with nonviolent means as, as uh, inspirational toward um, each other, right, toward one another. Um, at one point, um, Dr. King also said, "I." think the practical person has a better chance of dealing with nonviolence than people who tend to be dreamers or who are impractical. We're not nonviolent because we want to save our souls. We're nonviolent because we want to get some social justice for the workers. So they understood that their fights weren't about buses necessarily. They weren't necessarily about vegetables. They were always about the people. And in that regard, they kept the lives and safety of the people that they were working for um, and, and working to support in mind. So, um, you know, talk about, you know, great inspiration uh, um,
1: that the two had and and, and the great respect that they had for each other. We'll have more with Dr. Jose B. Gonzalez right after this. You are listening to the Martin Luther King Junior Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. We continue our conversation with Dr. Jose Gonzalez about the relationship between Cesar Chavez and Martin Luther King Jr. Although they never met in person, Cesar Chavez and Martin Luther King Jr. did communicate through telegrams. What did Dr. King say in his message to Mr. Chavez.
2: It really is so unfortunate that the two never met in person. But as you say, Nina, they did communicate with each other How much they did so is a topic of debate. Uh, But one thing that's certain is that in 1969, Dr. King reached out to Chavez, who had just ended a 25-day fast that had placed his life in danger. Um, He had also been aware, obviously, of of Dr. King's nonviolent boycotts and and their successes. Um, At that point in 1968, farm workers had grown frustrated, particularly of being attacked physically for striking. So as a result, um, there were some workers who in turn wanted to fight back um, some wanted to meet violence with violence, right? Um, talk about echoes, right? Uh, certainly Dr. King heard that message as well. Um, but Chavez knew that he needed to do something uh, before he, that, that momentum um, began to fade, right? So um, that something was risk his life. Uh, the FAST was considered a success as it drew national attention to their efforts and placed more pressure on Uh, farm owners. Toward the end of that is when Dr. King sent him this beautiful telegram as brothers in the fight for equality. I extend the hand of fellowship and goodwill and with continuing success to you and your members. The fight for equality must be fought on many fronts in the urban slums, in the sweatshops of the factories and fields. Our separate struggles are really one, a struggle for freedom, for dignity, and for humanity. We are together with you in
1: spirit. After King's assassination, Chavez continued his advocacy for farm workers and in 1970 was jailed for refusing to end a strike against lettuce growers. And while in jail, he was visited by Coretta Scott King, Tell us about the relationship that formed between Chavez and Mrs. King and the commonality of the challenges Blacks and Chicanos were facing at the time and still face to this day. Absolutely. So uh, Coretta
2: Scott King was an incredible activist as well who doesn't always get the attention that she deserves. I do think that although the two social justice giants, uh, Dr. King and Cesar Chavez, And yet, um, Chavez was careful to distinguish his efforts from civil rights efforts. And Dr. King was often careful to distinguish his civil rights efforts from strictly labor rights efforts. Um, And yet, uh, Martin Luther King once said in a speech, the displaced are flowing into proliferating service occupations. Uh, These enterprises are traditionally unorganized and provide low weight scales with longer hours the Negroes pressed into these services need union protection. And he went on to say, to play our role fully as Negroes, we will have to strive for enhanced representation and influence in the labor movement. Coretta Scott King recognized how labor rights and human rights were all part of The same effort, right? They were all part of um, the same uh, initiative, the same kind of activism. And so um, when she visited Chavez in 1970, uh, Chavez had been jailed for refusing to end a strike. Uh, This time it was against uh, lettuce growers. And after visiting him, she lent her support by delivering a powerful speech. And in that speech, she said, black people and brown people are herded at the bottom and told to be quiet and to wait for slow change. But change has never come to us in waiting. Waiting has multiplied the profits of the rich, but it deadens and depresses those below. She also added some high praise for Chavez and said, Cesar Chavez is not an accident. He is a genius of the people and their union. The farm workers union is a hero union. The two of them, um, Cesar Chavez and Coretta Scott King, supported each other's efforts. Uh, She marched with him in support of boycotts and strikes. And and Chavez, likewise, marched with her. Um, There were numerous efforts where um, they uh, supported, um, I wouldn't go so far as to say collaborated, but supported each other uh, when Coretta Scott King Supported the the Charleston um, Hospital workers' strike, for example, um, and and uh, spoke there, uh, spoke in support of them. Um, the United Farm Workers Union uh, sent hundred dollars in support of the workers. Um, that was in nineteen sixty nine, and so um, this relationship that they formed, I think, um, in many ways, is something that you know maybe had, you know, it really, I think, makes us think what could have been possible had um, Dr. King not been assassinated, um, but it also shows us you know, the power that individuals like, like Coretta Scott King and, and uh, Chavez um, had and, and how you know, working together ultimately led to incredible
1: change. Dr. Jose B. Gonzalez, Fulbright Scholar, Professor at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, and Editor-in-Chief of LatinosStories.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. To truly understand the work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it is important to understand the people who influenced his philosophy and shaped his outlook on creating meaningful change in America. One of the major influencers in King's life was a naturalist, essayist, poet, and philosopher who died before the end of the Civil War, Henry David Thoreau with us now to discuss Thoreau and his influence on Dr. King is Laura Walls, English literature professor at Notre Dame and the author of the definitive biography Thoreau: A Life. Laura, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thank you, Nina. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here.
1: Oh, the honor is ours indeed. And before we dive into how Thoreau impacted Dr. King's life. Tell us about the man, Henry David Thoreau, and the critical events in his life that shaped his worldview.
3: Yes, well, Thoreau was, uh, as you said, he lived uh, and lived just before the Civil War. He died quite young, or he would have lived to, to see and think through the uh, great uh, trauma of the Civil War as well, but he was plagued with tuberculosis, and that um, took his life in 1862. So he was born in Concord, Massachusetts, and of a family who uh, were making their living at that point as uh, manufacturers of pencils, a very useful and practical device. That Profits from the pencil factory allowed him to go as a scholarship student to Harvard and get a very fine classical education, which he pretty much ignored because what he was really interested in was natural history, which was not a subject that Harvard taught. So we now know him today as the author of Walden because in his quest to understand the cosmos um, and to understand himself and his relationship to it, He famously went uh, to Walden Pond, built a house there, a little tiny house, we'd call it today, and lived there for two years, two months, and two days, during which time he wrote one book on um, a memoir of uh, a summer trip with his brother and the first draft of Walden, which he then finished in the years after he returned to town. So, There's a lot more to say about Thoreau. Obviously, I've said it in a very large book, but we know him today primarily as the author of Walden, which is a kind of spiritual autobiography, and as the author of Civil Disobedience, the great text of, uh, as he, the original title, Resistance to Civil Government. Thoreau himself, you know, he saw
1: the inequality in the United States of America. The inequality was rife and, and you know, materialism was rampant and the American economy was wholly dependent on, on slavery. I mean, how did Thoreau react to what he saw as unjust? And his reaction certainly obviously had an impact on some pretty uh, great leaders, people who would evol- evolve to become great leaders.
3: The war with Mexico was such an outrage that it demanded more than simply conversations among friends about you know, the, the anxiety of what were we doing. And it demanded something more direct, direct action, as King would call it. In Thoreau's case, he happened to be in a good position to do something because he had already become part of what was called the New England non-resistance movement, And this is an interesting point because it's often assumed that Thoreau acted alone or that he thought all this up himself. There actually was a quite deep tradition of American descent coming out of uh, Protestant religions, uh, which had pointed out the vast difference uh, that could arise between the law of the state, the American legal system, and God's law or the higher law. And the New England Resistance Society dedicated itself to um, not refusing to resist, meaning uh, you, you would not participate in, uh, in the military, you would not participate uh, in anything that coerced another human being. So you wouldn't vote, you wouldn't pay taxes, Um, you wouldn't jail, but you would assent to be jailed if your actions led to a contradiction or a conflict with the authorities.
1: And thank you for walking us down that path. I mean, he was stirred, which caused him to uh, have the courage to stir others. And sometimes out of bad situations come uh, many epiphanies and some great uh, opportunities to push people towards change. And we know that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was uh, thrown in jail many times and had many people around him uh, jailed often for taking uh, what you call a principled stand and trying to get others to understand it. Dr. King and his contemporaries who participated in the civil rights movement were often misunderstood and ridiculed and criticized. And as we both know, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the most hated men of his time, that Gallup poll that was taken. And you know, to talk about that today in our terms, it's very hard for people to believe that Dr. King was, was hated in his time, that he didn't have high favorability rating, as we would call it uh, now uh, at, during his time for what he was doing. He was, he was shaking things up. And in that way, Thoreau was shaking things up. And so while some of the views between the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Thoreau were aligned, their viewpoints were very much aligned, there are some striking differences between the two. In what ways were King and Thoreau similar, and in what ways were they unlike?
3: Well, I think they, they were similar, um, as I mentioned, the higher law, the principle of higher law. And this is, I think it's very clear with King's writing because, again, he was speaking as a minister and speaking out of a religious faith and tradition. And as a leader of a movement, Thoreau was speaking as someone who was, um, had, had, broken with the church and became a kind of town crank, a very independent, shall we say, indiv- individual. And King's responsibilities as a leader of a movement were the sort of thing that Thoreau, that you know, speaking as a town crank, out of a dissident movement that was really reviled in his day uh, couldn't have envisioned. So King's responsibility to a larger movement um, would would be one thing that marks a tremendous difference between them and the way that one point where I feel it greatly is reading um, his letter from the Birmingham jail where he opens by speaking to his fellow ministers of the church and that sense of how could you fail to understand me? How could you have betrayed me? Um, speaking as a leader of the church to fellow ministers uh, to, to point out to them the contradictions within their own position. Well, you're now working on a very large stage and speaking to a tremendous tradition of American religion that uh, Thoreau was basically <laughs> trying to get his neighbors to listen to him and uh, to state a point of principle that uh, I think Thoreau understood how it could ramify but his first concern was addressing one's in personal and individual conscience. Uh, King had already come to a point where um, that was iron foundation, but he also had the the social and the institutional and uh, the, the great tradition of uh, religious faith to ground and um, accentuate, um, amplify uh, his message. And Thoreau was, In that sense, a a little more isolated.
1: When we return, we'll have more from Laura Walls, author of The Role Alive. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. We continue now with our conversation about the influence of Henry David Thoreau on Martin Luther King Jr.'s work for civil rights and justice with Laura Walls, author of Thoreau, A Life. What lessons from Thoreau can we really try to apply to our current circumstances that would also honor the legacy of Dr. King?
3: I think that Thoreau's great point is one that King would uh, not only honor, but model for us as well, which is that you always have the power to choose. That is, uh, you are faced with confrontations every every moment of choice. That is, Thoreau chose not to pay the poll tax. That's a specific tax that supported uh, the the actions of the larger government of the federal government. And symbolically was the moment when you agreed to participate as a citizen. So that moment of choice, to pay or not to pay, and it's reiterated constantly. But the other thing, and I think Thoreau understood this, but I think King understood it more deeply and certainly um, um, leveraged this out into the the wider world um, with, with tremendous effectiveness, is that the power to change the world itself. Thoreau says, um, he says, it's not a man's duty as a matter of course to devote oneself to the eradication of any, even the most enormous wrong. He may still properly have other concerns to engage him, but it is his duty at least to wash his hands of it, and if he gives it no thought longer, not to give it practically his support. If I devote myself to other pursuits and contemplations, I must first see at least that I do not pursue them sitting upon another man's shoulders. I must get off him first, that he may pursue his contemplations too. So there's the minimal moral demand. You don't have to make the world a better place, but you've got to make yourself a better person, right? So King has taken this to the next level because he's going to make the world a better place. Thoreau would say that's optional. You don't have to do that, right? It doesn't it's not your moral duty to do that. But King sees, sees a larger truth, which is that civil government, which is what Thoreau addresses, civil government does have the moral obligation to improve the world because no single person can improve the world all by themselves. And it is the collective responsibility of all of us to work together to improve our common world. And that can only be achieved by collective action. Professor
1: Walls, thank you so much. English literature professor at Notre Dame and the author of the definitive biography, The Role of Life. Thank you so much for being with us on the Martin Luther King Junior Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers,
2: but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use
0: Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader.